Okay, um, well, first of all, I just wanted to start really by, by just saying thanks very much to Fiek and Aideen and Kelly for the invitation to be here. Um, it's great to be in such nice company. It's great to hear so many stimulating papers. You know, even the, even the tweets are deep and meaningful, um, which isn't often the case. So what I'm going to be talking about today really is the, uh, the use of archives, theatre archives, for scholarly research and by extension for teaching. And what I thought I'd do is just start with an anecdote uh, about something that happened to me in an archive. So it was about two years ago and I was in the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford-upon-Avon. And the reason I had gone there is because I was interested in a man called James Halliwell Phillips, very distinguished Shakespeare biographer who lived during the 19th century. I was interested in this man because I knew that he had owned a copy of the third folio. This is a collected edition of Shakespeare's plays published in 1664. Very interesting book. Um, interesting in its own right, but interesting to me because I knew that this particular copy had originally belonged to Smock Alley Theatre here in Dublin. And they didn't use it just for reading pleasure, they used it as a prompt book. So what this man Halliwell Phillips had in his possession was all of the prompt books for the very first performances of Shakespeare in Ireland. Um, it's really interesting stuff. There, this isn't a great, uh, particularly well re uh, resolved image, but you can get a kind of sense of, of what it looks like. Um, so this is an excerpt from Midsummer Night's Dream, and as you can see, they have an actor's name in there to say who's playing the roles. They've cut some of the lines. They've changed some of the words. You can find out what props they used, how they managed their entrances and exits, and so on. And they have this for Hamlet and A Midsummer Night's Dream and Othello and lots of other plays. In my opinion, uh, we could call this a national treasure, if only it still existed. Um, regrettably, Halliwell Phillips was using it for research. So what he did was he tore out the pages and he chopped them up and he pasted them into his scrapbooks. Now, some of the prompt books survive. You can see them in the Folger Shakespeare Library in uh, Washington, D.C. And there are also fragments in these scrapbooks in Stratford. And so it was the scrapbooks I had gone to see. So, you know, I arrived and I looked at the scrapbooks and I found what I knew was already there and I found it interesting. And then I got talking to the archivist and she said, you know, there's boxes and boxes of the stuff down there in the vaults. So I asked, as you, anyone else would, I said, uh, well, what's in them? And then she said the one sentence that every researcher longs to hear. She said, I don't know, no one's ever really looked at that stuff before. <laughs> um, so, um, I pulled on my white gloves, you know, which you, which you need for archiving, feeling very good, you know, I can understand why Michael Jackson wore a white glove as well. Um, and I got down to work. Now, to tell the truth, I didn't really find anything particularly interesting. Um, but what I did find was something that did surprise me. And it was a few more fragments uh, from a play that I hadn't known had been produced in Dublin in the late 1600s. And that was Antony and Cleopatra. Now, the evidence is a little bit inconclusive about this. It's cert certainly not conclusive. Um, but it was a really interesting thought, uh, perhaps even an interesting discovery. Now, Antony and Cleopatra is about lots of different things. But one of the things it's about is the dangers of empire building. You know, we have this great Roman general who becomes like the people he's trying to govern in the far-off colony. So, you know, he spends a lot of his time in the play drunk, or high, or in bed with Cleopatra, or all three. 
Uh, and it's for that reason that he loses his part of the control over Rome, uh, leading to the rise of Caesar Augustus. Now, you know, maybe this production never happened at Smock Alley, but as I was looking at these fragments, I found myself asking a question. You know, what would it have been like to sit there in that theatre in front of an Anglo-Irish audience at a time when Ireland was undergoing a process of colonisation and to watch this play that says to would-be empire builders, whatever you do, don't get too close to the natives. And that's a question that I'm probably not ever going to be able to answer. I mean, we always hope that, you know, there'll be a box in somebody's attic somewhere in Birmingham and it'll show up something that we didn't know was there, but the likelihood is small. Um, in any case, I suppose the reason that I mention this particular story is to get at the idea um, that there's something very romantic about archives. Um, I know it might be kind of hard to imagine that you're up to your elbows in dirt and things that are dusty and damp and a little bit smelly, you know, but that is actually romantic. And it's romantic in the sense that when you're working in an archive, you go in there with the words, I wonder if. And those are the three words that people use when they're in love for the first time, I wonder if. Um, they're the words that scientists use when they think about putting people on Mars or curing cancer. And those are the words that artists use when they sit down with a piece of paper, I wonder if. Now, in fairness, those words, I wonder if, are also used by liars and con men and thieves. Um, but I think it's also true to say that, you know, we can judge the health of a society by considering its citizens' capacity for wonderment and for curiosity. So, you know, one job of a teacher and one job of a theatre is to stimulate that kind of curiosity in the people that we work with and to channel that curiosity into whatever fields people want to work in. But another responsibility that we have, a shared responsibility, is to think about the curiosity that people will have about us in the future. And perhaps this is a question that Halliwell Phillips wasn't thinking about when he destroyed the prompt book. But it's an interesting thing because it never occurred to him never occurred to him at all that in a hundred years' time, people might be interested in how theatre was staged in Dublin. He was a distinguished biographer. He cared about Shakespeare, cared about the theatre. He wasn't a barbarian. He just thought it wasn't going to be of interest to anyone. And to be fair, that's also true of Smock Alley, who sold the thing in the first place. So I suppose what that means is that, you know, we go to archives to answer questions that are important to us today. And today's urgent question may have been irrelevant 10 years ago or 20 years ago or whenever it was. And I think then perhaps one job of the academic, one job of the archivist is to make sure that when people look back, they aren't greeted with silence or with absence, which is one of the things we find so often in our archives. Um, that's something that we're very dedicated to at NUI Galway, where I work. Um, where we have a, a lot of the archives of Irish theatre companies and Irish actors. So we've got the papers of Thomas Kilroy, whom we heard uh, so brilliantly this morning. We have the papers of Druid, the Lyric Theatre, Galway Arts Festival, Machnus, Siobhan McKenna, Arthur Shields. Um, we have the papers of John McGahern, of course a great novelist, but also uh, wrote plays, one of which was, was in fact staged here. Um, and as with all theatre archives, you, uh, you can't see that very well, but you're always going to find amazing discoveries. So on the slide there, um, you won't be able to read any of this, but the image on your left is the title page from a very early Brian Friel play, um, which he now doesn't really acknowledge. It's called The Blind Mice, staged in Belfast in 1964. 
And then on the right, we have an unproduced script of a Flann O'Brien play called The Dead Spit of Kelly. And they're both from the Lyric uh, Theatre Archive. And at the time, you know, in the 60s when they were lodged with the Lyric, people thought they weren't significant. And if anything, that makes them more interesting now. You know, what uh, a bad Brian Friel play might look like. Um, what an unproduced Flann O'Brien play might have looked like as well. Um, so as Katrina was saying then, one of the other things we've been doing since last year is working with the Abbey to digitise their archive. And I'll just put up on screen there to give you an idea of what the database is looking like. This is going to take us until 2016. We're about a third of the way through it already. Um, and when it's done, it's going to be by far the world's biggest digital theatre archive. Um, I suppose just to put it in context, uh, the biggest theatre archive online at present in Ireland and the UK is about 30,000 items. Um, ours is 1.5 million items across several different media. So, you know, ours is bigger than theirs. Uh, <laughs> with apologies for lowering the tone. Um, yeah, I know, it's sad. It is sad, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I should also say that the stuff we've already um, digitised is available for consultation in the Hardiman Library in Galway now. And, you know, you're all welcome to come uh, and have a look. I'll put up the opening hours on the last slide when I finished. Um, you know, it's only two hours away, the roads are very good now, um, so I hope people will feel welcome. Now, there are many reasons why a university might want to carry out a project like this with the Abbey, and I suppose one is that no one has ever tried to do anything this big before. And that's one of the things universities are for, is to do things that no one has ever really tried to do before. Um, it's one of the things we have theatres for as well, so it's a particularly good uh, project to do together. To again ask that question, I wonder if it's possible to do something like this. Um, but I think what we're also trying to do is transform our understanding of Irish theatre. Before 2002, uh, when Chris Morash published his excellent History of Irish Theatre, the history of Irish theatre was actually really more like a history of Irish plays. Play scripts were analysed. Uh, there was a great focus on authors rather than directors or designers. And this had many consequences. But one of them was that because we were looking mostly at plays, we were also looking mostly at men because the Irish dramatic tradition is dominated by male authors. And so you have these crazy anomalies. Uh, Brenda Winters, another member of Sharabank, has pointed out that several of the books published on Irish drama in the 80s, 90s, and even beyond that, focused page after page on Field Day, very rightly, but rarely if ever mentioned Sharabank, which is just as significant, if not more. Um, you can think about this in another way. Uh, here at the Abbey Theatre, um, let's just imagine since 1940, over the course of 70 years, let's just imagine that on the main stage of this theatre, we might have seen maybe 500 plays altogether. Now, I've checked this with Mairead, who's the archivist here, and she's given the thumbs up. So we're going to say 500 is a good estimate for the number of plays over the last 70 years. Now, some people will know the answer to this question, but just think about this for a minute. Of those 500 on the main stage, how many do you think were written by an Irish woman. Now, I've asked that question before, and sometimes you get optimists who'll say, well, 500 plays, maybe 200 by Irish women, you know, less than half, but still a lot, and that's wrong. Um, others will say, well, at the moment, it's one in four in Ireland produced by, uh, one in four plays produced in Ireland now is written by a woman, so they assume that might be the case then too. That's wrong too. Um, cynics will say, well, maybe it's 50, you know, a really low, disgraceful number like 50. And they're also wrong because, in fact, the answer is five. Um, 
so since uh, I think I believe the last one was Teresa Devi with with uh, Wild Goose in 1936, and then there was a 51 year gap before we saw more plays by women, and of course three of those were by Marina Carr. Um, now Stacey Gregg made the point yesterday: this is not exclusive to our national theatre; it happens elsewhere too. And in fairness, the Abbey now is aware of this, and we see lots of great examples of this, um, one of which, of course, was the performance of Elaine Murphy's Shush on the main stage last year. But it's still a really amazing statistic. But when you actually look at the Abbey archive, it quickly becomes really obvious that there are not you know, dozens, but in fact hundreds, of Irish women working in this theatre in direction, in design, in performance, in stage management, in administration, and in lots of other ways as well. So when you have an archive that allows you to say that Irish theatre is not just about plays, it's about other things as well, that will allow us now to rewrite the history of Irish theatre and to show the presence of women in that history, something that is starting to happen but hasn't happened up to now often enough. Um, we can also detect the presence of the Irish audience in really interesting ways too. Um, some of the things that researchers do, you know, I suppose instinctively is we prioritise some things over others. So you assume a play script is more valuable than maybe a stage manager's report. But when you're using a search database, um, that does, doesn't necessarily differentiate between these things. It treats all text or all tags as equal. And that means that information comes up that you might actually have thrown in the bin years ago. Um, a good example of this is actually ads in the Abbey's show programmes. We've talked a lot and thought a lot about audiences during the symposium. But if you want to know what people thought of the Abbey audiences, look at what they tried to sell them. And it's very, very interesting. Um, I'm just going to show you, you again, you probably can't see this very clearly. Um, but this is, from, this is from 1943. And uh, so this, uh, I'm interested in this firstly because it's got an ad for the Happy Ring House which is uh, on O'Connell Street. It's where people went to buy engagement rings. You've got arrow, you've got Rolo, so chocolates. You can't see this, but it's hilarious. It says, are you particular how your shirts and collars are laundered? If so, send them to Harold's Cross Laundry. You know, that's the kind of thing that people are trying to sell to the Abbey audiences. So when you see that recurrently, you've got ads for the Happy Ring House in the Abbey, Abbey programmes from the 20s and onwards, what does that tell you? It tells you people came here on dates. They came here when they were courting. And they ate their rollos and they ate their arrows and <laughs> thought about how bad it is, you know, that laundry doesn't work out the way you want it to. Um, and that's very different from the image of the audience that we have had handed down to us by W.B. Yeats, who talked about people disgracing themselves again. Um, in the 80s, cigarette companies, there's carols congratulating the Abbey. And in the Celtic Tiger era, Anglo, Anglo-Irish Bank, um, so, you know, that journey from, from Rolo to Anglo in the course of 70 years, um, you know, it just tells us a lot about what people here did to relax, what they thought about things. And it, I think it also goes some way towards answering Wayne Jordan's question about why Abbey audiences sometimes uh, persist in interpreting plays their own way. It's because there's a lot of other stuff going on. The Abbey is part of this social network that includes restaurants and shops and taxi companies and banks and lots of other things in the city. So the programmes make that real and make it you know, obvious in certain ways as well. Um, I'm out of time, but just going to finish very quickly by saying that we haven't, I think, much talked about the fact that in 2114, people are going to be looking back on us. And I'm conscious of the fact that a lot of Irish theatre archives at present are in basements and are in attics 
And you know, the attic is the anteroom to the curbside skip. So that worries me. It worries me that our newspapers don't really review, or certainly our national newspapers don't really review theatre outside of Dublin anymore. So that's making a lot of work invisible in Limerick and Galway and Waterford and elsewhere. And it worries me that so many of our practitioners are putting their stuff on Dropbox and Twitter and YouTube, which is fine in itself, but we don't even know if any of those things will exist in five years' time. When we care about something in our society, we show that we care by recording it in some way, by writing it down. You know, that's why we sign our marriage vows. That's why we have newspapers. Uh, that's why in civil wars, one of the first things to go is often public records, and why in invasions, one of the first things to happen is that museums will be looted. So one of the ways that we can show that we care about our theatre and about ourselves is to understand that in 100 years, people will be curious about us. People will say, I wonder if, about us, in ways that we can't even begin to predict. So as the title of this panel says, I hope that one of the things that comes out of these brilliant few days is that we make sure that we do archive the next play. Thanks very much.